Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A coded wartime message discovered in a bottle. It's very possible that it could have changed the outcome of the war. The remains of a curious creature answer an age-old mystery. It's actually one of the most important fish in the world. And a pair of shoes that tells a gruesome tale. Some people say he just had a morbid curiosity. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics, each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. The Riverside City of Portland, Oregon, is home to an unconventional museum that asks visitors to brave a look beneath the surface. This is the Shanghai Tunnels experience. Our museum is very different than most. Because first of all, you're underground, and there's no lighting, and you're always wondering what's around the next corner. Once this dusty maze functioned as a practical means for transportation of cargo. But according to curator Michael Jones, what really took place here was anything but ordinary. We emphasize something that no one wants to talk about. Within this mysterious labyrinth, one artifact hints at a sinister past. It's about six feet by six feet, but it also has these bars. And you can't get out once you're in. 
Cells like this one were reportedly a terrifying stopover for an illicit exchange. A holding location for perishable goods made of flesh and blood. So what role did this holding cell play in one of the most terrifying trades of all time? Portland, Oregon, the 1880s. In this bustling port city, ships are constantly coming and going from distant lands and are traditionally crewed up with local sailors. But as the gold rush takes hold, men start to look towards the mines rather than the seas to make their fortune. And the pool of sailors starts to dry up. For the ship's captains and merchants, that's a problem. According to Michael Jones, one man thinks he's found a way to capitalize on this void of willing men. His name is Joseph Bunko Kelly. Joseph Bunko Kelly, who is not only smart, but physically powerful. He knew who needed what, and he knew how to get what he wanted. The story goes that Kelly makes it his business to know everything about the vessels at port. Where they were going to go to, how many men they had on their ship. Night after night, Bunko Kelly gets to work, putting a cunning plan into motion. Bunko Kelly spent a lot of time in the saloons. He would sit back, observe who was here. There are sailors, there are loggers, there are people that work hard and play hard. On any given evening in one of Portland's many bars, Bunko Kelly and a wily accomplice lie in wait. As unsuspecting drifters imbibe with their friends, they become less aware of what's going on around them. It's the perfect moment for Bunko's beautiful henchwoman to slip something into the drink of an able-bodied male. He's going to get sleepy, and all of a sudden, he's going to be completely unconscious. As the effects of the drugs take hold, Kelly helps his latest victim towards a very special area of the saloon. And within a flash, he disappears. All of a sudden, he was there one moment and gone the next. Unbeknownst to any onlookers, the secret to Bunko Kelly's clever scheme is right below their feet. A trap door. When the victim is standing at the wrong place at the right time, he pulls a lever. The person falls to the floor. And into a dark and terrifying labyrinth, where Jones claims Kelly's henchmen drag the passed-out, unwitting victim through the twisted maze to a holding cell. This little tiny room was the key to kidnapping here in Portland. Back above ground, Kelly heads down to the docks, where he approaches a ship's captain who can't leave port before rounding up enough able-bodied men. He tells them that he has men available for them and is now going to cost him $50 a man. With no other options, the captain is forced to agree to Kelly's proposal. Bunko returns to the Shanghai tunnels, goes to the holding cell, drags that poor lost soul out of the cell, through the underground, all the way to the waterfront. But far away from freedom. Bunko returns to the ship, offers this 
cast out man to this captain. Captain is suspicious, but Bunko assures him he's just sleeping off a drunk. He'll be fine. The impatient captain has no choice but to take Kelly's word for it and pays him for his service. The ship pulls away from the harbor, its new crew in tow. By the time the drugs wear off, it's too late. No money, no ID. They have no place to go. A typical voyage lasted three long, hard years. Many of the ships that leave Portland with their crew of captives on board are headed for Shanghai. This illegal means of getting men aboard ship, kidnapping them, and take them to the port of Shanghai, China, became known as Shanghai. But Bunko Kelly is just one of many in this terrifying trade. Throughout the late 1800s, men are kidnapped throughout the Western United States. And in 1906, the practice of Shanghaiing sailors is officially outlawed by the U.S. government. But at the Shanghai Tunnel's experience, the legend of Joseph Kelly's nefarious scheme lives on. Veils of secrecy, clandestine communiques, and an umbrella that can kill. These are just a few of the tools of deception at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. While the collection sheds light on the art of espionage, there is one item on display that speaks of a dark moment in our nation's past. An eight and a half by 11 inch piece of paper, typewritten and signed by hand. It bears the stamp of the highest court in the land. What role did this thin sheet of vellum play in one of the most controversial spy cases in American history? 1949. In this post-war era, the United States and the Soviet Union grapple for supremacy. Then, on August 29th, the Soviet Union shatters the stalemate and tests its first atomic weapon. American officials are shocked. Former CIA analyst Mark Stout is a historian at the International Spy Museum. U.S. intelligence had known that the Soviets were working on a nuclear weapon, but had not expected them to be able to test it until at the very earliest 1950. Just four years earlier, the U.S. dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima, effectively bringing World War II to its end. It was the culmination of years of development by a top-secret government program known as the Manhattan Project. There were immediate suspicions that Soviet intelligence had penetrated the Manhattan Project and been able to steal key secrets about the design and development of the atomic weapon uh, and use that then to really jumpstart their own program. The FBI begins looking for moles within the Manhattan Project. The investigation eventually leads to a former machinist at the top-secret Los Alamos atomic bomb facility, named David Greenglass. They call him in for questioning, and in less than 20 minutes, Greenglass confesses that, yes, in fact, he had passed nuclear secrets to the Soviets. He just folds like a house of cards. Greenglass and his wife are arrested, 
and begins sharing information with investigators. He claims that he was recruited to spy for the Soviets by his communist brother-in-law, Julius Rosenberg, the husband of his sister, Ethel, and that Julius was the mastermind of the spy ring. So investigators offer Greenglass a deal. If he provides more information on the Soviet spy ring, his wife will go free. From the very beginning, David had been concerned about what was going to happen to his wife, and he didn't want to see his wife sent to jail. Greenglass quickly agrees and offers new information that implicates not only his brother-in-law, but also his very own sister. He claims that when he passed information to Julius, his sister played a critical role. He had seen Ethel type up notes of the classified information that was coming out of the Manhattan Project. Investigators arrest the Rosenbergs. They refuse to acknowledge their Communist Party affiliation and deny the charges of spying. Julius and Ethel were unrepentant and refused uh, to provide any such cooperation. At trial, David Greenglass testifies against his brother-in-law and his very own sister. And as a result of Greenglass's testimony, the Rosenbergs are found guilty of passing nuclear secrets to the Soviets. Greenglass receives a 15-year sentence for his role in the plot, and his wife goes free. The Rosenberg sentence is death. Many are convinced that the Rosenbergs are innocent and are merely being punished for their extreme political views. But the government doesn't waver. Then, just two days before the scheduled date of execution, lawyers approach Supreme Court Justice William Douglas and argue that the Rosenbergs have been convicted under the wrong law. The Rosenbergs have been convicted under the Espionage Act of 1917, which does allow for the death penalty, but these two lawyers argue that they should have been convicted under the Atomic Energy Act, which does not allow for the death penalty. The lawyers urge Douglas to act, and he issues this document. A stay of execution, a lifeline for the convicted couple. Now an emergency session of the Supreme Court is convened to determine if the Rosenbergs will live or die. It's 1951. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg are sentenced to death for passing nuclear secrets to the Soviet Union. But two days before they're scheduled to die, a Supreme Court justice orders a stay of execution. The fate of the Rosenbergs rests with the highest court in the land. What will it decide? A gripped nation awaits the Supreme Court's ruling. This was the news story that everybody was talking about. It was the O.J. Simpson trial of its day. In an emergency session, the court determines that the Rosenbergs are subject to the death penalty. Later that day, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg are electrocuted in the first civilian execution for espionage in American history. But even after their demise, many are still convinced of the Rosenbergs' innocence. 
The critical evidence against them was the testimony of Ethel's brother, David Greenglass. Then, in 1995, the government releases the Venona Papers, a set of decoded secret Soviet communiques intercepted during World War II. And what the public learned was that the U.S. government had smoking gun proof back in the 1940s from these KGB cables of the guilt of Julius Rosenberg. But because this information was acquired in such a sensitive way, it couldn't be introduced into court. And in fact, the prosecutors themselves weren't even aware of this fact. While the classified papers confirm the guilt of Julius, Ethel's role in the spy ring remains unclear. In the Venona papers, she's not even given a Soviet intelligence code name, which suggests that from the Soviet point of view, they did not have a clandestine relationship with Ethel Rosenberg and suggests that maybe uh, she had been innocent all along. While Ethel's true role in her husband's spy ring may never be known, this day of execution remains on view at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., reminding us of one of the most controversial spy cases in American history. Tucked away in the rolling hills of central Wyoming lies the small and dusty town of Rawlins. At the Carbon County Museum, artifacts from the iconic days of the Wild West paint a picture of Wyoming's rich past. And among these bygone relics sits a seemingly simple everyday accessory, a pair of shoes. They almost look like two-toned Oxford shoes. There is dark leather at the top and lighter leather at the bottom. But according to museum director Tiffany Wilson, the strange story behind this pair of shoes never ceases to fascinate visitors. When people come to see the exhibit, they have this morbid curiosity and they are immediately drawn to it. This aging pair of shoes features in a gruesome tale of strange science and macabre justice. What role did these shoes play in one of the most twisted tales of the Wild West? 1878, Medicine Bow, Wyoming. It's barely a decade since the railroad first came through town, bringing with it goods, supplies, cash, and robbers looking to pilfer it all. On August 19th, two outlaws are down at the tracks, trying to stop a train. So these two outlaws are trying to pull up railroad ties in order to derail the train, which means that the train will actually fall off the tracks. But things don't go as planned. The Union Pacific patrolman comes along and the jig is up. They've been caught. The would-be robbers run for the hills, but two lawmen are hot on their trail. These outlaws are facing death by hanging because of their interference with the Union Pacific Railroad trains. And so they're desperate. The fugitives hide in the bushes, their guns at the ready. When the lawmen approach, the criminals attack and shoot the two marshals dead. The murderous outlaws steal their victims' horses and ride north, confident they've escaped the gallows. The people in Carbon County are outraged. These are two beloved lawmen, and they really redouble their efforts to find these outlaws. Two years later, after an epic manhunt, 
one of the men is finally tracked down and lynched. Yet the mastermind remains at large. 1880. In a saloon in Montana, a man is boasting loudly of having killed two lawmen in Wyoming. And getting away with it, as far as he's concerned. His name is Big Nose George Parrott, the leader of a ruthless gang of outlaws that has evaded capture for years. But Parrott's luck is about to run out. As he regales the crowd, one eavesdropper doesn't like what he hears. Someone hears him bragging, and they contact the authorities down in Carbon County. Before Parrott knows what's happening, lawmen arrive to arrest him. And it's ironic that in bragging about how successful he is in getting away, this is what gets him caught. Big Nose George Parrott is returned to Wyoming, where he is sentenced to death by hanging. But impatient locals don't want to wait for his date with the gallows. The people in Carbon County have remembered what Big Nose George did, so they want justice. Taking the law into their own hands, an angry mob of vigilantes storms the jail and seizes Parrot. Then they string the murderous outlaw over a telegraph wire, where he is hanged. But the story of Big Nose George doesn't stop there. I think if the story of Big Nose George ended at his death, he would just be another Western outlaw who was lynched. But the story of Big Nose George really begins at his death. What happens to Big Nose George after he's lynched? And how does his legend live on? Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In the heyday of the Wild West, a notorious outlaw named Big Nose George is lynched for killing two lawmen. So what role does this simple pair of shoes on display at Wyoming's Carbon County Museum play in Georgia's bizarre legacy? After the hanging, one local man is determined to make the most of Parrott's untimely demise. A physician named Dr. John Osborne. And his latest fascination is the criminal mind. The theory was that the criminal brain was structurally different than the normal brain. Looking to prove his theory, Osborne performs an autopsy of Parrott's brain, searching for evidence that the criminal brain is different. But his hypothesis proves false. So, in a final bizarre twist, before he closes the case, he decides to create a little memento. He had some some pretty strange tastes and souvenirs. Cutting ever so carefully into George's flesh, Osborne removes a piece of skin and brings the morbid sample to a tanner with a shocking request. Dr. John Osborne sends the skin with definite instructions to create a pair of shoes. The very same shoes now on display at the Carbon County Museum. The darker portion is from some kind of animal hide, most likely cattle. And the lighter portion is the unique part of the shoes, uh, which is made out of the skin of Big Nose George Parrot. And when you touch them, you kind of think, what was he thinking when he made these? Some people say he just had a morbid curiosity. But Osborne was just as curious about wearing the shoes. As he enters politics and rises in Wyoming's political arena, the shoes remain a prized possession. And on the day he is inaugurated governor of Wyoming, he allegedly dons his favorite footwear. People like to say that that's the most prominent place he wore the shoes. Today, this posthumous homage to a one-time bandit lives on at the Carbon County Museum where an aging pair of shoes tells a skin-crawling tale of Wyoming's most macabre keepsake. Dayton, Ohio, home to the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force, a priceless repository of the country's most cutting-edge and historic aeronautic innovations. We have Air Force ballistic missiles and space launch vehicles, including the enormous B-36 and B-52 bombers. We have stealth fighter. There's at least one of just about everything here. But nestled amidst the museum's winged artifacts is one object that cannot fly. Curator Doug Lantry believes it's among the most exceptional in the collection. It's made out of uh, sturdy nylon mesh material. At the top are lacing points for restraint. This is a suit manufactured by highly trained engineers to aid in one of the most crucial space experiments in American history. It was worn by a most unconventional space pioneer. His name was Ham. Otherwise known 
as the astrochip. But why did the U.S. send a chimpanzee into space? And did he make it back to Earth alive? January 1961. America and the Soviet Union are in the throes of the space race. The pressure is on to send man beyond the Earth's atmosphere. But no one can be sure what such a trip will do to the mind and body. The effects of sustained weightlessness and really tremendous acceleration were not well understood at that time. With so many unknowns, NASA is unwilling to send a person into the cosmos. So they decide to send the next best thing, a chimp. Chimpanzees were the ideal test subject because they closely approximated human physiology. Officials at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico have several chimps in rigorous training programs. But one in particular stands out. The best candidate for this flight turned out to be a 37-pound, 44-month-old male from Cameroon. NASA names him HAM, which stands for Holloman Aeromedical. Ham was a little celebrity. He was famous. NASA doesn't just need to test the effects of being in space on the body, but also how it affects the mind. For this, Ham needs to be trained to react to specific conditions through the use of signals. What he had to do was respond to a series of lights by pushing two levers. When he pushed the levers at the proper time, he would get a banana-flavored pellet. It's hundreds of hours of training. And after an intense 15 months in the space program, Ham seems ready for launch. 2 a.m., January 31, 1961. NASA engineers place Ham in his custom-made restraint suit, the very suit that is now on display at the Air Force Museum. He's locked into his intergalactic vessel. And at 11.55 a.m., Ham's rocket tears off the launch pad of Cape Canaveral. The launch was normal. But there's little time for the ground crew to celebrate. Because just two minutes into the flight, the mission suddenly veers off course. The rocket engines that are supposed to slow the craft fall off. That resulted in the spacecraft going much further than it was meant to. Instead of orbiting at the planned 115 miles above Earth, Ham's craft is circling at 157 miles. And the complications don't end there. The launch vehicle went about 1,000 miles an hour faster than they thought it would go. Ham's speed reaches 5,800 miles per hour. Which is pretty dang fast. His heart rate and his respiration are going up, and he's being pressed into his couch. NASA engineers soon realize their mission and their astrochimp are at serious risk. The question is no longer whether Ham will complete his duties, but whether he will survive at all. It's 1961. In a quest to win the race to space, NASA prepares to send a chimpanzee named Ham into orbit. But within minutes of the launch, things go horribly wrong. Can the mission be salvaged? 
And will Ham survive? Ham's capsule has traveled too far, too fast. But miraculously, he makes it safely beyond the Earth's atmosphere and experiences zero gravity. The weightlessness was a very important part of the experiment because they wanted to see if he could continue the tasks while he was weightless and perhaps disoriented. And he does. He did very well despite all the things that went wrong. Ham's success thrills his team back home, but it's too soon for celebration. The most dangerous part of his journey is yet to come, the re-entry. But because he's traveled so far off course, where he'll land is anyone's guess. Ham's spacecraft plunges toward the Earth and finally splashes down. There were about five-foot waves at the time. Ham was getting bumped around. For nearly 30 minutes, NASA struggles to find his coordinates. And finally, they spot him 132 miles off target in the Atlantic Ocean. His spacecraft was hoisted by helicopters onto the USS Donner. After Ham's violent ride, no one can really know what they'll find inside his tiny capsule. But they crack open the hatch, and a hero emerges unharmed. You'd think he'd be mad as a wet hen after all that, but it's like, give me an apple, give me an orange. Against all odds, Ham has become the first earthly creature to perform intelligent tasks in outer space. And a mere three months later, Alan Shepard becomes the first American human being in space. Ham's flight was a precursor to human flight. Ham spends the rest of his life living comfortably at zoos along the East Coast. And his suit remains on display at the Air Force Museum, a proud reminder of America's humble beginnings on a new frontier. Richmond, Virginia. This former capital of the Confederate States of America is now home to the Museum of the Confederacy. It boasts one-of-a-kind artifacts from the Civil War. But among these impressive relics is an unassuming item so small it can easily be overlooked. It's an aged glass vial, less than two inches long and just centimeters wide. Inside of the bottle is a small piece of paper that's very tightly rolled up and tied with a string. It's a message in a bottle that for 145 years remained unread. What does it say? And what role did it play in an epic battle that changed the fate of our country? August 2008. Newly appointed curator Kathy Wright stumbles upon a forgotten artifact in the museum's collection. A sealed glass bottle with a scroll tucked inside. I was immediately very intrigued about what the contents might be. Museum conservators carefully remove and flatten the paper, revealing for the first time since it was penned a secret message. I opened it, only to discover a random jumbling of letters that made absolutely no sense. We immediately suspected that it was written in some kind of secret code. Wright calls on cryptologists or code breakers to decipher the text. 
cryptologists discovered that the code was created using a Visionaire cipher method. The Visionaire cipher method is a coding system created in 15th century Italy. Modern historians know that it made a resurgence on the battlefields of the Civil War as Confederate generals conducted clandestine communication. Now, 145 years later, the cryptic message in a bottle is finally decoded. What does it say? And what will it reveal about one of the most decisive battles of the Civil War? It's 2008. Curators at the Museum of the Confederacy in Virginia stumble upon a forgotten relic. A glass bottle containing an antique scroll. It bears a cryptic message written in code. What does this message in a bottle say? And who wrote it? Among the decoded words is what seems to be a strategic message from one general to another. July 4th. General Pemberton, let General Johnston know, if possible, when you can attack the same point on the enemy's line. Inform me also, and I will endeavor to make a diversion. For curator Kathy Wright, it's a puzzling dispatch. We expected some really earth-shattering secret to be suddenly revealed, but the message introduced several more questions than it answered. Wright hones in on the name of the recipient, General Pemberton. Who was he? What did he do? And what attack was he planning? May 22, 1863. Vicksburg, Mississippi. The Civil War has been raging on for two years. The Confederate stronghold in Vicksburg is under siege by the Union, with the Union Army outnumbering the Confederates two to one. Vicksburg was of tremendous strategic importance to both the Union and the Confederate armies. It was situated high on the bluffs above the Mississippi River and as such commanded the river as a transportation and communication route. Whoever held Vicksburg could very well hold the destiny to the entire war. One Confederate general is put in charge of defending this critical city. His name is John C. Pemberton. But by July, Pemberton's army has been under siege for more than a month. His only hope is assistance from his comrades outside the city. Pemberton seemed to be waiting for some of the other Confederate armies to formulate a plan that might be able to actually help him. Stationed across the Mississippi is Confederate General John G. Walker. He is aware of the siege on Pemberton's troops and he is eager to aid in an attack against the Union. So Walker pens an urgent message to his beleaguered colleague, suggesting a two-sided offensive. Let General Johnston know, if possible, when you can attack the same point on the enemy's line. Inform me also, and I will endeavor to make a diversion. He's offering a plan in which he and the other Confederate generals can coordinate some kind of attack. This attack should divert the Union away from Pemberton's army and Vicksburg. Walker encodes the message and sends it to Pemberton. But the message is never received. 
The date on the message is very significant because it's July 4th, the same day that Vicksburg was officially surrendered to General Grant. By the time the dispatch reaches Vicksburg, Pemberton has already surrendered. The city is in Union hands. And the message is returned to Walker's camp, unopened. If the author of this message had sent it one or even two weeks earlier, it's very possible that it could have changed the outcome of the war. But with the message unread, the attempt to save Vicksburg is futile, and the fate of the Confederacy is sealed. In April 1865, Union forces win the war, changing the course of American history forever. And here, at the Museum of the Confederacy, remains this encrypted and corked dispatch from the Civil War, reminding us of a strategic plan to save the Confederate forces that arrived too late. Egyptian mummies, dinosaurs, and biological specimens. Here at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, Millions of items all record the history of life on Earth. But hidden in the collection's archives is one of its strangest relics, a fossil that answers an age-old mystery. The fossil itself weighs about 10 or 12 pounds, and it's about 380 million years old. According to paleontologist Ted Deschler, this could be a crucial missing link in the story of our species, a primitive creature that explains how animals evolved from living in water to living on land. The first thing you think is, wow, you know, there's an animal that has a head that's sort of the shape of an alligator or a crocodile. But these are the remains of an ancient fish known as Tiktaalik. It's actually one of the most important fish in the world. But does this fish hold the key to evolution? Does its unusual shape provide evidence of a fish that could crawl on land and breathe air? Summer 2002. Ted Deschler and his team touched down just 500 miles from the North Pole on remote Ellesmere Island. They're looking for the holy grail of paleontology the fossil of a fish that had begun to adapt to life on land. What we really wanted was to find evidence about the transition from finned to limbed animals. And they think it could be buried here in the Canadian Arctic. Although it may seem counterintuitive, the area that is now up above the Arctic Circle it was almost equatorial and the shifting plates have since carried it all the way north. The team picks, shovels, and sweeps until the barren rock begins to yield layer upon layer of fossils. They belong to known species of prehistoric fish, except for one small fragment. There was one specimen in 2002 that definitely was something different when we first found it. It's the snout of a fish, but with its flattened nose, it looks more like an alligator. It's when we saw that fossil that we began to get really excited. We knew that the earliest limbed animals had these sort of flattened alligator-like heads. So could this fossil belong to the prehistoric creature they're looking for? 
a fish that had evolved to live on land. In the Canadian Arctic, a team of paleontologists finds the fossil of a strange-looking fish. Could the remains of this prehistoric creature explain how animals evolved from living in water to living on land? Without the rest of its skeleton, the team can't be sure if this is the animal they've been looking for. In 2004, they return to the site, where finally they make their breakthrough. We found three almost complete skulls of this new flat-headed form, so we were ecstatic. We knew we had more of the animal that we were particularly interested in. The team encases each fossil in a protective layer of plaster and rushes them back to the lab. There, they carefully remove the plaster from the specimen and chip away the rock until the almost intact skeleton of a 380-million-year-old fish is revealed. Not only does this have some of those features that we associate with fish, but it also has features we associate with limbed animals. The general shape of the head and the position of the eyes is not unlike a salamander, typical of animals that specialize for swampy, shallow habitats. They name the new species Tiktaalik, after the Inuit word for shallow water fish. But Tiktaalik's fins are unlike those of any fish they've seen. They contain a risk-like joint. These fins were being used on the bottom for helping it move along. The fins could help support the body in shallow water and maybe even on land for brief periods of time. And it's outfitted with another astounding feature. As well as the gills of a fish, it has a set of primitive lungs. So this animal could have breathed both air through lungs as well as through water past the gills. The more and more we uncovered about Tiktaalik, the more we realized that it was a transitional form. Fish features, limbed animal features, somewhere in the middle. With characteristics of both fish and limbed animals, Tiktaalik appears to be the creature that first crawled out of the water onto land. Today, its fossilized skeleton sits in the vaults of the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, providing a rare glimpse at what could be our own prehistoric ancestor. From kidnapped sailors to shoes made of skin, prehistoric fossils to encoded messages. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.